you ever run by the beach or in Central Park? I remember the moment when I realized that the people I ran past were actually people. Not cast members of The Truman Show, but real people. Behind or in front of each runner, stories, doubts, lives, loss, coincidences, betrayals, innovations, rejections, joys, disappointments, triumphs, and probably really fancy apartments. But to me, they were just extras in my own little TV show. But no one ever wins an Emmy for the role of runner in the park. I was on the beach in Tel Aviv, maybe two years ago, on a trip of sorts before the pandemic. And I brushed shoulders with a bald, tall Ashkenazi man with bold eyes and an average figure. Well, for Tel Aviv, at least. After we brushed shoulders and made eye contact, I thought I knew him. Nothing came to mind. Maybe it was the share music blasting in the background, but my brain blanked. A millisecond and a brief interaction, and then onward. The only direction a runner knows. I pride myself in my memory, but I malfunctioned. I looked for him the next day, but I only saw him a few days later. I remembered. I heard him speak at one of those fancy Jewish galas with cold chicken and stuffy crowds four years prior in the dead of winter at a ritzy hotel with cocktail prices that could kill. There, thousands of miles and seasons away from the warmth of a summer morning run, he was celebrating. But when I saw him years later, alongside the beach and the morning sunlight, he was just a runner. So let's call him that, the runner. You should know he is probably one of the most exceptional minds of our time that few outside of Israel have ever even heard of. But more on him later. Anyway, I ate my chicken and my generous table mate's chicken. Like I said, it was a fancy place and no chicken should go to waste. Anyway, years and many other chicken dinners and morning runs passed. I was back in my hometown living with my family. I escaped my Central Park runs and crowded apartment for just a few weeks as a minor pandemic emerged. It wasn't minor and it wasn't a few weeks. Try 18 months from the magic, defeats, and triumphs of living in a city for an antsy, tortured millennial extrovert like myself. In the pandemic, my runs were filled with far fewer people than my runs in Central Park or Tel Aviv. I lost the wonder. I lost the incidental crowded brush of a shoulder or spotting a famous person. 18 months is a long time for an extrovert to retreat from a city, from socialization, from the rush of jogging next to an endless Tel Aviv sunset or a New York City skyline of apartment buildings I would only ever be invited to for a shiva or a graduation party. And yet, I thought of the runner, a man I ran past once, but changed Israel and the entire Middle East forever. A single man transformed the equation, and I only saw him because I drifted out of my lane and into his. I needed to find others like him. Who else could I find? There has to be more like him. The world has good people in it, right? There's a name for the wonder and secrecy that surrounds people like the runner. It's called the Lamed Vav. The Lamed Vav is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the four corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. Basically, 36 people like the runner I ran into on the beach. I decided to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. 
This is my journey to find wonder, goodness, and maybe even the runner in our once magical world. My name's Justin Hayat, and this is 36. For my first episode, I wanted to bring someone on I've read for years. On the edges of Jerusalem, we were welcomed into Yossi Klein Halevi's home. He's written four critically acclaimed books. He's a public intellectual, but also a private person, a calm, cooling soul on a scorching summer day. He welcomed us into his home as we dove into his story that led a kid from Brooklyn into the hills of Jerusalem. This is my conversation with Yossi Klein Halevi. We are here in Jerusalem, in the home, I think, of probably one of the most important and probably my favorite Jewish author of the 21st century, who's hosting us in his home. He just gave us tea. His wife is cooking. It smells like, mat- uh, like chicken noodle soup, so I guess... We're that- vegetarian, but, but close. <laughs> <laughs> Yossi Klein-Halevi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, really a pleasure to be with you guys, and uh, thank you. You've written so many books, and uh, what, like Dreamers is probably, I think, one of the greatest pieces of like Jewish literature of the past 100 years. Where have you been my whole life? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a hype man, you know? <laughs> and so I wanted to talk to you briefly before we get into the real reason we're here, just about like, what does it feel like to tell such important stories and how do you deal with that burden? Uh, I think the, the word burden is exactly right. Uh, because um, I would say that I approach the telling of the Jewish story in a way that, uh, that I imagine a sofer, you know, a scribe approaches writing a Torah scroll uh, with a sense of, uh, of awe. The, and I'm speaking specifically about the modern Jewish story, the Jewish story of, of our generation. I, I almost feel that before I write, I should go into a mikvah the way that a, 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 a sofer does, because it's, it's a holy responsibility to tell the story and to try to get it right. I mean, you can't get it right, but at least to approximate getting it right uh, is, um, that's the burden. And it's year ah, you know, the, the, the sense of, fear and awe with which I approach this work. And I'm always frustrated because I know that I never quite get it right in the way that it should be. Everything is an approximation. Maybe that's true for all writing, but I feel it especially acutely in writing about the modern Jewish story. And, and you know, for me, this is the ultimate time in 4,000 years of Jewish history to be alive. This is the time to be a Jew because we are living after all of the great dreams and nightmares have come true. And our generation and subsequent generations are entrusted with telling the story and trying to understand it. And that's the particular responsibility and the burden and sometimes the joy of being a Jewish writer at this time. So tell me, 
before you came to, you know, you didn't just show up on this beautiful overlook, uh, looking over the Judean desert, you know, with a beautiful wife and life here in Israel. There's a, a young man who stumbles upon this concept of Israel. Can you tell me about him? Well, I didn't really stumble on Israel. Israel stumbled on me. I grew up in a Holocaust survivor family. My father was a survivor from Hungary. My mother came to America just before the war uh, from Hungary as well. And Zionism was the sacrament in our home. Hanging on our kitchen wall was this bronze engraving of Herzl with his long beard, looking like the image. I grew up in Borough Park in Brooklyn, a Haredi neighborhood. We were not Haredi. We were modern Orthodox. But in other Borough Park homes, there were probably similar images of old Jewish men with long beards, except ours didn't have a kippah. And uh, Herzl was our, was our Rebbe. And so that was the osmosis. You know, that's, I, I just grew up in that. And it was so obvious to me that what mattered in my life was going to be trying to figure out what it meant to be born right after the Shoah. I was born in, in, in 1953. And to be part of the first generation to grow up uh, with a Jewish state. What did that mean? And so I always felt growing up, feel this way anymore, funnily enough, as an Israeli, but I always felt growing up that there was something inauthentic about being an American Jew. I felt that I was a spectator, that this was the real story. Now, I certainly feel that this is the main story, but I wouldn't today say this is the real story. There are many Jewish stories around the world that are important urgent even. I have no regrets for joining this story because I do think this is the heart of the Jewish story in our time. And it is the ultimate Jewish adventure to be part of this place. And I always knew I was coming. As long as I remember myself, I was obsessed with Israel. And the first time I visited here was the fateful summer of 1967. And I was 14. I came with my father. We, we came right after the war, maybe two, three weeks afterwards. And we were here for that extraordinary euphoric summer of 67. And that was the moment when I knew that's it, I'm, I'm moving here. In fact, I told my father, uh, you can go home now. I'm staying for high school. I had just graduated eighth grade. And I said, uh, I'll stay for high school and it'll work out. And uh, you can imagine how that worked out. And uh, so I went back with, obviously, but I knew that it was just a matter of time before I would be permanently uh, tying my life to this crazy place. Yeah. And craziness kind of shows up in your life. And you flirt <laughs> with it. Yeah. To put the craziness that I'm about to tell you in some context, the late 60s was really a, a crazy time in America generally, and, and Jewishly in particular. I grew up at a moment of convergence, say upheavals in America and upheavals in the Jewish people. And it was all happening at the same time. The late 60s tra obviously transformed America in every way, in politics, in culture, in music. And I was very connected to the 60s uh, as a frustrated bystander. I wasn't old enough to really be fully part of the 60s, but I inhaled the 60s. At the same time, 
the late 60s for the American Jewish community was one of the most extraordinary moments uh, in the history of American Jewry. The Soviet Jewry movement was beginning to take off. And I had been an activist in the Soviet Jewry movement pretty much from its earliest beginnings. I, I joined the movement. I was 12 or 13. I joined in uh, 1965. And the Soviet Jewry movement had been formed a year earlier. And I was getting increasingly frustrated because it was too peaceful. It was too timid. And we were looking at the blacks in America and the students and the, every, every group was on fire. Every group was violent. Every group was angry, except the Jews. We were very well behaved. I remember it used to drive me crazy when after a Soviet Jewry rally, the police would tell us, you're a very well behaved group. And I thought, no, that's all wrong. You know, this is the post-Holocaust generation. We're supposed to be angry. And then Mayor Kahana came along with the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, and I said, yeah, yeah. That's the face of my generation, that snarling, enraged Kahanist face. I joined up with Kahana in my teens and made the shift from the peaceful side of the Soviet Jewry movement to the violent side. That became my coming of age, it was really uh, the JDL and seeing close up what happens when a manipulative, violent man exploits well-intentioned teenagers. And everything that's happened since then with the Jewish far right, in a way, I, I, I was at the birth of that phenomenon. Yeah. And yet, today, your life le has led you to kind of sitting in calmness in, in your work. How did you find it? Because from, from one Ashkenazi Jew to another, I'm trying to find calmness in my life and in this crazy world. And Meditate. That's first of all. Uh, there's terrific Jewish meditation. We have a group here called Da'at Elyon, which does fantastic work. And I've been involved with a circle of Jewish meditators working on Kabbalistic meditation just about from the moment I got to Israel. So that's almost 40 years. I'm not a calm person. Writers are not calm. Writers are nervous wrecks. You're locked up with yourself all the time. You're up against your own limitations. You have these grand ideas of what you're going to be writing. And then when it comes out, you're always face-to-face -face with, your, with your limitations, your inadequacies. Like I suspect most writers, I live with a very high degree of frustration, which is all the more reason why I need meditation and yoga, and to try as much as possible to uh, live a God-centered life, to keep reminding myself that what this is all about is what we say, avodat Hashem, is serving God. And you serve God in whatever you're doing, whatever your profession is, whatever your relationships are, you serve God. And I'm trying to serve God through my writing, not only my ego, that's obviously almost impossible to free yourself from, but you try to control it and to have a balance of power more toward the service than the self-indulgence. And if you're able to, to work on that, it brings a measure of inner peace. I don't want to overstate it. The state of my inner peace is fragile, <laughs> but it's there. It's fitfully there. So we have a mutual friend. You know, he's very different than you, but 
I see myself in him in that like we are these right-wing Jews in a crazy world trying to find common peace and purpose. And there's a playbook for the, for the Jews on the other side. <laughs> there's organizations for them to go to on the other side. And yet we're just kind of the one of maybe 20% of <laughs> wandering right-wing Jews in the diaspora looking for meaning. I know you have many conversations with him about life and finding your center. What advice would you have for us? You're asking about my center. And politically, I know that's not what you're asking, yeah. but I will get yeah. to that. Politically, I very much identify myself with the center. And for me, at least, and every, every person's process will be different, but for me, a crucial part of trying to find my spiritual center, my inner balance, was finding my political balance. And when I moved to Israel, it was, uh, it was the summer of 1982. I am coming to an answer to your question. Well, I mean, the, the question had no, was it had no substance, so the answer can either. <laughs> <laughs> it was the summer of 1982, uh, which was one of the worst moments in the history of Israel. We've had a number of worst moments. That was one of them. And the summer of 1982 was particularly devastating because it was the the first time, and thank God the only time in, in Israel's history, when war not only failed to unite us, but war actually divided us. We've never experienced that before or since. And I had just gotten off the plane and, you know, hey guys, I'm here, you know, I made Aliyah, I did it finally, it took a while, but I'm, I'm here. And, and the country is tearing itself apart between left and right during a war, because of the war. And this was a tremendous shock for me. And I would walk the streets and people would literally be shouting at each other on the street corners, traitor, boged, you know, poshea milchama, war criminal. You know, the first, the first Rosh Hashanah was here. My parents were staying uh, at a, whatever it's called now, it used to be the, uh, the plaza, and they went across the street to the great synagogue. And so uh, Sarah, my wife and I went, uh, after davening, we waited for them to come out. And this is Rosh Hashanah, uh, 1982. And there's a group of Peace Now demonstrators waiting outside. And they were waiting for Menachem Begin, prime minister, who was inside. He comes out and they start yelling at him, murderer, war criminal. And we didn't know, but Sabra, the Sabran Shatila massacre had just happened, like the day before. That was my first Rosh Hashanah in Israel. And so there was this sense of this country unraveling. And I realized that the only way that I'm going to enter into this society, I had two options. I was either going to choose a camp. I'm either with the settlers or I'm with peace now. I'm with Tel Aviv or with my friends in Tekoa. Uh, or I'm going to say, no, I came here to join the Jewish people as a whole. I'm not ready yet to choose a side. I want to listen and learn. I want to, I want to listen deeply to the arguments on all sides. So I started reading, first of all. And I, uh, I read religiously two magazines. One was Nikuda, which was published by the Settlers' Council by the Yesha Council. 
And the other was Koteret Rashid, uh, whose editor was a young Nahum Barnea. Today, he's the senior figure in Israeli print journalism. And, uh, and it was quite a left-wing magazine. David Grossman wrote for them, etc. And I would go back and forth between Nikuda and Koteret Rashid. And that's how I began to form my inner discourse, which internalized the left-right shouting on the streets. They were now shouting inside my head. I was shouting at myself. And I realized as I became more a part of Israel that there is a left-wing side of me and a right-wing side of me. And that equals the center. And the center is that part, is that place within Israeli politics and Israeli society that is able to contain our contradictions and try to resolve them, try to make sense of them. And for many years, that was a lonely place in Israel because we, we, we had these very small, irrelevant centrist parties that would rise and disappear. Meimad, Rav, Rav Yudha Vital, founded uh, a party that was called a religious left-wing party, but it wasn't. It was actually a religious centrist party. Uh, Sharansky's uh, Yisrael Baaliyah, there was Hadera uh, HaShlishit of Avigdor Kahalani. There were all of these parties that came and went that were trying to, to define an amorphous political center, which I think is more than a political center. I think it's also a cultural center. It's the place where Israel's identities as a Jewish and democratic state are being worked out. It's the center that is firmly committed to both of those identities. And lo and behold, fast forward to, to the last few years, uh, the center is now the second largest camp in Israel. And many American Jews don't understand what has happened in Israel. They think we're still debating between the right and the left. We're not divided between the right and the left anymore. We're divided between the right and the center. And for me, what that division is really about is a division between those who always have all the answers and those who are struggling with the answers. And, uh, and that's the camp that I belong in. We're struggling. We do come up with answers. We have to. You, you, you live in a, in a life and death situation. And um, that's my long way of trying to answer your question of looking for that place where the tone is lowered where the stridency and the certainties are lowered, or maybe to put it in a more accurate Israeli context, it's where you internalize two strident certainties that contradict each other. And so the way that works, for example, is um, on the Palestinians. I realized the more that I read Nikuda, that the right is right. How do we make peace with, uh, with, with the Palestinians when their leadership, their national movement doesn't recognize our legitimacy, our indigenousness here. They're, they're right. They were right then, they're still right. Then I would read Koteret Rashid and I'd say, wow, what's, what, what are we going to do here? Are we going to forcibly absorb 3 million Palestinians and with Gaza? And that's before Sharon unilaterally withdrew and he was called a traitor for that by, by the settlers. And today, the settlers talk about how we can annex Judea and Samaria because we don't have the million Palestinians in Gaza. So 
and without, of course, you never, in Israel, you, you're never gracious. In Israel, you never, and you certainly never say I was wrong. So the right, the right owes, I think, owes Sharon an apology. They never will give Sharon an apology, but that's neither here nor there, or maybe it is, but we'll leave it. And so it's, it's lowering the temperature. Look, we are a survivor people, which means we carry the deepest traumas in our being, and we are living in the middle of impossible, relentless pressure. War every few years, uh, delegitimization, boycotts. We're living under the microscope. The world examines every caravan on, on every hilltop. It's a relentless uh, experience being an Israeli. And so, of course, we're overheated. Of course, we're looking for, for certainties. But what, if, but what if there is no clear way? And that's the conclusion that I came to. And again, you know, I, I, I have to vote. I have to make decisions. I feel like that's a very intense day for you. I take it very seriously. You know, it's, it's interesting because um, I haven't always voted center. I voted for Netanyahu in the past. And I voted for, for Rabin and Barack. You know, I, I've, I've... Were you able to vote for Begin at the time? Or you, there was no, an election? No, no. He, um, he resigned uh, before I was able to vote. I, I'm not sure I would have voted. Right, yeah. But yeah. You know, I, I, I loved him and, and revere him to this day. But um, already by the 80s, I was starting to feel that the bombast... You know, the, the style, you know, the great orator in the square. You know? <laughs> it was already, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the right tone for, the for this generation. Yeah. We needed a tone of more ambivalence. That's what I was looking for. What's the greatest Jewish story that hasn't been written about yet? Wow. Great question. Look, I think that the Soviet Jewry story has only begun to be written about. It is one of the most important Jewish stories of our time, which makes it one of the most important Jewish stories of all time. I really, and, and again, I know that's saying a lot about this time, but I feel that the stories of this time are among the most important Jewish stories of all time. Uh, I don't think the Mizrahi story has been told properly yet. And I think we're, we're on the verge now where uh, the traumas and the hurt uh, of the early decades are beginning slowly to, to some extent, to heal. I think it'll take longer, but, but there is healing happening. And I think that's going to open the way. We need to tell the story of a, of a world that existed for over 2,000 years and disappeared in one generation. What happened? Where did it go? Uh, what was that world like? We don't know. We've lost it. And one of the great things that's happened in Israel in the last years is that we've gained it back a little bit through the music. You know, the return of piyut, of the prayer poems of, of uh, the Jews of, of the Muslim world, uh, and the way that piyut has been absorbed into Israeli popular music, into Israeli rock, is one of the greatest things that's happened um, culturally and also socially, in, I think, in the history of Israel. I make big statements. 
<laughs> but uh, I really, I really think that, and uh, and I'm waiting for the writers. I want to see the great Mizrahi writers, and uh, and that's coming. That you know, that's I'm sure that's coming. Israel is composed of three major waves of Aliyah beginning in 1948. I don't mean the early, the Chalutzim, the pioneers. Since 1948, the first wave were the survivors. The second wave coming closely afterwards uh, were, and in some ways overlapping, uh, were the Mizrahim. And the third wave were Soviet Jewry. Each of these waves were traumatized. Each of these waves were, were refugees that had nowhere else to go. And that's the post-48 story of Israel. To a large extent, the Holocaust stories have been written and told and spoken. The other two waves have not yet told their stories. Those are the stories we need. Speaking of stories, you know, you've written many books and... Not as many as I want. Not many. Does that torture you? Yeah, sure it does. Sure it does. I'm, I'm very slow... And I know there's just so much to write. And um, I, wish, I wish I were more fluent. I, I, I wish I didn't waste so much, so much time trying to figure out what it is I have to, I have to write. But that's, everyone has their own process, and uh, that's mine. And, um, and so, yeah, that's yeah. part of the torment. Do you remember like the moment on one of your books that you wrote the last word? And I know it's kind of like saying when, you know, a movie doesn't shoot it, film its last scene, you know, in chronological order. But do you remember the moment where you decided on the last word of Like Dreamers? Yeah, sure, sure. Did you cry? I did. Really? Overlooking this and the sunset. <laughs> I'm crying now, actually. I, that Suddenly that moment was just, it was, it, I don't know where that came from. It just totally overwhelmed me. But yes, yeah, that was, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. And, um, and that's when you know that, you know, it's time, <laughs> time for the next book. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Very intense. So you are your work. Like, it's like... It oh, li- yeah. It's- <laughs> My wife says to me that the only time when you're more miserable than when you're writing is when you're not writing. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. that's right. That's right. And uh, no, this is um, this is my life, definitely. What's the last word of like dreamers? The last phrase is grateful to be a Jew in this time. It is Yol Binun. I don't remember the first half of the sentence, but he's um, he's walking toward the wall. It's the morning of uh, Yom Yerushalayim, of Jerusalem Reunification Day. And he has just led an all-night kind of a pilgrimage uh, through East Jerusalem, through the route of battle, and ending at dawn at the wall. And he does that every year. Yoel Benun is one of the heroes of Black Dreamers, one of the paratroopers who reached the wall on June 7th, 1967. And he is someone who, uh, when you first encounter him in the book, has no interest in the wall. All he cares about is the Temple Mount. He's the right-wing one, right? Uh, he was one of the founders of the settlement movement. Yeah. Uh, there were three, three right-wing heroes in the book. 
and I'd say three left-wing and one kind of centrist. (laughs) And some of them do change, you know. I mean, there is movement. But Yol Binun, part of Yol Binun's evolution is is realizing the consequences of right-wing extremism. So his closest disciple uh, turned out to be the person who was plotting to blow up the Dome of the Rock. And this totally shocks Rabbi Yolabinun, and he begins moving toward the center. And he is, he, he really is uh, one of the heroes of the book for me, for the, one, of the, one of the heroes that I most identify with, precisely because I, you know, I made a similar move from the hard right to the center. And so the book ends with, um, with Rav Yoel walking toward the wall, not to the Temple Mount. He's walking deliberately to the wall, and that's the place of his pilgrimage. And it, it, it talks about how that in this generation, we, we need to be grateful for what we have and not hope for what we can't have now. And the last phrase is grateful to be a Jew in this time. And you connect with it immensely. Oh, that, that summed up for me what the book's about. And, uh, and when that line came, that's when I knew the book was over. Wow. So it's like five New York City marathons, all in one word. Yeah, but, you know, uh, the book took 11 years to write, <laughs> and I was so sick of it that, that it's like running, running a marathon when you're on your last breath. <laughs> Grateful to find the last it was, sentence. <laughs> it was not. It was not an ecstatic moment. It was. It was just. You know. Thank God that's over. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, wow. That was uh, a lot. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and so my last question is: You were asking everyone this question, and what's one a verse of like Talmud or Torah or, or song or something? that sits with you like a bird chirping on your shoulder that like you probably don't really even like share. It just is there and you, you, you repeat it to yourself and it keeps the oil in your tank going and going and going. Wow. Wow. You're a, you're a tough interviewer. <laughs> uh, I really have to think about that. We're going to have to shut the mic for a while. And, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me give you a, a worthy answer to a great question. There's a line in my favorite song uh, by Ehud Banai, which may mean that it's my favorite song in all of contemporary Israeli music. Uh, the song is called uh, Esther, and it's about a half-mad woman mystic who lives uh, out in the Galil, and the young Ehud Banai is madly in love with her. And there's a war going on in Lebanon. Uh, this whole story that he's telling in the song. And um, before I tell you the line, when I first heard that song, and it's um, it's very much kind of Middle Eastern, it was one of those early signs of a synthesis between Israeli rock and Mizrahi music. When I first heard it, I said, what is that? You know, um, that's... That's the Israel that I've moved to. It's mystical. It's insane. It's not like anything that people outside of Israel think it is. There's something else going on here that's, that's not visible or not 
not discernible from f- through the media. And, uh, and Ehud Banai caught it. He caught the wildness, the, the, the power, the spiritual power, and the frightening madness into which that spirit, it's so powerful here, it can become madness. And we see that with the march of the flags. We see it, you know, it's the madness, the, mad, the religious madness just is, is, is there. But if you, if you could harness that religious intensity just short of, of it turning into madness, you have something messianic. It's a very messianic song. And there's a line, uh, a line in there, that's, uh, which is the refrain. Uh, let's see. Yom echad hakol yifrach alev shel haolam yiftach. One day, uh, everything will flower. The heart of the world will open. And um, that's Ehud Banai's messianic vision. He's very messianic. Actually, uh, want to write about that sometime. Messianism through Ehud Banai's music. But that line sits with me, and it is, to my mind, uh, in some way, um, summing up what the Jewish story has been about uh, from the beginning, from from Lech Lecha, from from God telling Avraham to go forth and create a, uh, a people, which is that our job is to open the heart of the world, to be among those who, it's not only our job, but to be among those who open the heart of the world. Uh, that means making sure that our hearts stay open, not easy in the middle of uh, everything that we're up against. But uh, those words sit with me. And I um, actually made a pilgrimage a few years ago to Ehud Banai's studio. I went to see him in Florentine in South. He has a little studio in South Tel Aviv. I used the pretext of going to interview. Oh, great excuse! I used it today. <laughs> and really, what I just wanted to do was was tell him thank you for for making me an Israeli because I really feel, I really felt that that song kind of that was the moment, the trigger when I said I can own this culture. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, and thank you for the words you've written over so many years that have really helped people open up their own hearts to realize how incredible this country is and this to be a part of this people is. And so thank you for joining us and thank you for your calmness. That's that's really why you're a Lamed <laughs> I mean, how is this guy so calm? <laughs> you know? So thank you so much, Yossi Klein-Halevi. Thank you for joining. Really a pleasure. I left Yossi's home with a calmness that I rarely find. Sometimes I'm a little too intense even for myself. I've met authors, a few famous people, and many politicians. For me, in my own little world somehow, Yossi was all of those things put together. I thought about his story, lefts and literal hard rights, and the path that led him 40 years after his aliyah to this beautiful apartment, a loving wife, and the joy of a soup on a hot summer day. Like the characters in his books, he is complex and tortured while relentless in striving. For what? The simple things in life, really. Inner peace, answers, joy, fulfillment, the ideal of Zionism that captured him as a kid. He's too selfless to keep this struggle from us. So he gives his readers histories and contradictions 
hot soup and hotter tea, and above all, the greatest, most ancient Jewish pastime, a great story. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Sampalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>